So this morning, uh, we're going to continue our journey through the book of Exodus. If you miss any messages on this series so far, I encourage you to please check out our Facebook page and our YouTube videos uh, and watch uh, on your free time. Uh, this is the good part about, you know, having these messages recorded that people can actually go back to it um, on their free time. And hopefully you do have some time to do this, like, you know, on your devotions. And who here has the you know, quiet time, personal devotions. Nobody? Two or three people. You should, you should do that. I mean, hopefully this message will kind of encourage you to do that. But we should all be doing that, not just on Sundays. It's, it should be a lifestyle for us as, as believers, right? So uh, before I get into today's message, let me just give you a quick um, outlook on what we're going to be doing the next uh, couple of weeks. Um, so... It's almost November. Halloween is like what, Monday? <laughs> so one more month and it's Christmas, uh, the new year. Um, so um, before we get to that part, um, we do, I do want to announce that uh, we just finished our book uh, that we are studying uh, on Wednesdays. So we're going to be starting a new book. But before we start that new book, I'm going to take a Sunday to give it an introduction. Okay. For two purposes, uh, so that you know what we're studying, and to encourage you to come attend Wednesday fellowship. Okay? So don't tell me, oh, it wasn't announced. Oh. Uh, and it's online. So there's no excuse. Unless you're working, I get that. But if you're not working and you're just watching, whatever it is that people watch nowadays, I don't watch TV anymore. <laughs> um, there should be no excuse. You just click a button and you're there. Join us for our Wednesday prayer fellowship. So I'm going to take a Sunday to introduce this new book that we're taking up. It's called The Things of This Earth. It is by Joe Rigney. He is now the president of Bethlehem College and Seminary in uh, Minnesota. So we used to go to their um, semin seminars uh, back in the day when they still had them. Uh, but he's the, he took over for John Piper as the president of that school, and he wrote this book called The Things of This Earth. And basically, it's a clarification of John Piper's preaching, uh, John Piper's theology, which is that God is to be treasured above all things. Do we agree with that? That God is to be treasured above all things and enjoyed? Okay? So... When people hear that, a lot of times they take it as, oh, that means that I only can find my enjoyment in God, that he's the only thing that I have to treasure. He's the only person that I should treasure. Um, for a lot of people, that's, uh, that's, what, you know, that's what they take from hearing that theology. Um, but that's not what Piper means because in reality, God has given us other things to enjoy. Namely, those of you who are married, your spouse. Right? Unless you don't enjoy your spouse, that's, that's a different story. Uh, unless you're not happy with your spouse. We were talking about that, right? In the Proverbs. Right? What does it say in the Proverbs? A wife is either a crown or a cancer. So hopefully nobody here... <laughs> And it goes both ways, not just the wife. The husband, too, could be a cancer 
or our crown. Um, but that's, that's what it is. God gave us our spouse, our kids, your jobs, your resources for you to enjoy. Now, when you hear preaching that says, no, just enjoy God, it doesn't seem logical. It doesn't seem right because in reality, God wants us to enjoy his blessings as well. So this book will help clarify that. Okay? This book looks at how we are still to enjoy God's blessings without making a God out of the blessings. We are to enjoy God's blessings without making a God out of the blessings. So yes, I know you love your wife and wives, you love your husband. They're not your God. Do we agree with that? Some people, I know. My wife is my life. What do you, what, I always hear the happy wife. I don't agree. <laughs> I see a lot of happy wives with sad husbands. <laughs> so I don't agree with that. But yes, enjoy your spouse. Yes, enjoy your house. Enjoy your cars. Enjoy your food. Don't make a God out of those things. Uh, God gave those to us as a pointer back to him so we can see how good he is um, and we can enjoy him more. Right? So my hope is that after hearing more about this book, uh, more people will be encouraged to join our weekly prayer fellowship. Fellowship is not a, you know, I'm not, forcing you to come but i hope you will um, so not just to learn more and to grow more uh, as our walk you know in our walk as believers but also to serve others uh, through prayer because uh, that's what we do we study and then we pray um, so that's going to be next week um, now as far as advent is concerned i already talked about this last week we're going to be doing a series on typology uh, specifically looking at the types of Christ seen in the Old Testament, the types of saviors seen in the Old Testament. Lots of them. If you read the book of Judges, there's a bunch of them there. Uh, we only know one. A lot of us, we know one, Samson. Um, Samson is a type of savior, right? It's a type of Christ. So we're going to look at all, all those types. So I'm going to leave it up to the speakers to pick which type they're going to speak on. But ultimately, uh, it's so that we can see that even through the Old Testament, this, this, this notion or this idea of having a Savior is already being told. Okay. Everywhere you look even, not forget the Old Testament, just the Old Testament, look at all the superhero movies. There's always this idea, look at Superman. The new Superman, every time he goes up to the sun, he goes like this. Where did I, where did I get that from? So there's this, always this idea of a savior because we cannot save ourselves. There's always this idea of a savior. It's always been throughout the history. Uh, just had watching, uh, I just watched Black Adam. I don't know if you guys follow your movies. Don't watch it. It's not that great. Um, but same thing. Uh, but now they're flipping it to even a bad, you know, guy could be a savior. But really, it's... It, that's not what the Bible talks about, right? Uh, the Bible talks about how God is ultimately the Savior, and he does it through the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so that's what we're going to take up. And hopefully, again, it will 
give us a whole new outlook on Christmas and what we're actually celebrating every time we celebrate Christmas. Uh, so that's the hope. Um, so hopefully you can pray for that, pray for the people who will be speaking, pray for our Advent services this coming season. Um, okay, let's get into the message. So last week, we looked at what happened to the Israelites after the instructions for the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. As the story goes, Moses, what did he do? He repeated the instructions for Passover to his elders, who in turn sent the same message to the whole congregation of Israel. Now, these instructions for Passover are for the salvation of the firstborn of the Israelites. That was the original intent of the instruction, to save the firstborn of the Israelites from the destroyer that is coming through the 10th plague. Okay? When the 10th plague finally arrived, um, those who follow, who believed the instructions, believed the commands and followed them, uh, were saved. After the plague, the Egyptians who were not spared uh, were quick to get rid of the Israelites. Remember the story? They didn't wait for them to pack up and leave. They just told them, get out of here. God even told the Israelites, go get, ask them for gold. Ask them for, for silver and gold. They just gave it to them. Here, just get out. Right? Get rid of the Israelites so that the Israelites left in haste, just as God had promised. So after 430 years of slavery, people of God were finally free. And I said last week that that was a pointer to God's kingdom-building plan. From the start, after the fall, Genesis 3, God already started this process to rebuild his kingdom on earth that was destroyed by the sin of Adam and Eve. Right? So what was God's kingdom building plan again? How did we define God's kingdom? We defined it as God's people living under God's rule. In God's place, or maybe backwards, God's people in God's place, living under God's rule and blessing. Okay. That's the definition that I gave, simple definition that I gave to God's kingdom. That's what it means for God's kingdom to be on earth, for God to have a people under him uh, who is in his place under God's rule and blessing. The story of the Exodus is a pointer to that, right? Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, God has been working on rebuilding and restoring his kingdom on earth. It began with covenants to Noah. What was the covenant to Noah? The rainbow, right? I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop my war against humanity after he sent the flood. He put a rainbow. He, he hung up his bow. God hung up his bow, meaning he stopped the war. I'm not going to war with humanity anymore. In fact, I'm going to use humanity to save, right? And throughout the whole of history, that's what God is doing in redemptive history. And then he gave a covenant with Abraham, right? What did he say to Abraham? You will be the father of many nations, and through you, many nations will be saved. Uh, and we see the progression of that kingdom work in the story of Moses and the Israelites in Exodus. That's what God did in the Exodus. He took his people back, took a people to himself. 
through or in the Israelites. So as far as the kingdom building process that we see in Exodus, the first step is God has taken this people back to himself. Okay? Freed them from slavery. And the next step is for God to get them used to being under his rule. Okay? Remember, the Israelites were under the rule of the pharaohs for 430 years. They need to be reacclimated okay, to be under God's rule. And I said last week that the rest of the books of the Torah, what are the five, first five books of the Old Testament? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the Torah. That's the law. Okay? All those books contain instructions on how the people of God ought to live. That's God, that's God teaching them how to live under his rule, right? So as far as the greater spiritual truth of the story of Exodus is concerned, the Exodus is appointed to God's salvation through the Passover lamb, and the time that the Israelites will spend in the wilderness is appointed to the sanctification that happens to a true believer. Uh, all true believers, if you're a true believer, you will continue to grow in faith and in the knowledge of God. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. If you're not growing in faith, you're not growing in knowledge, then maybe you should examine yourself. Because the faith that God gave us by grace is a faith that works. It is a living faith. So don't tell me that it only stops at a certain point in your life and then that's it. No. As long as you're alive, you will continue to grow in faith. If you are a true believer. That's why I said last week that this, this, this next part of the story in the wilderness is where most of us can relate to. Right? Because hopefully all of us are going through this growth sanctification process. Amen? Right? Hopefully all of us are going through it. And it's God teaching us how to live under his rule. And that's what's happening here. Right? So, what is the first thing that we read in the story as far as this, you know, God teaching uh, the people of Israel to live under his rule? It begins with instructions. Instructions for what? Instructions again for the Passover meal. Okay, let's read it again. Exodus 12:43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover no foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All of the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn and with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did, just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. So now, if you're paying attention, okay, where is the first set of instructions for Passover? Hmm? 
Same chapter at the beginning, right? So why more instructions? Okay, you ask yourself that question. Okay, so as we look at these next set of instructions for Passover, what I want us to do, and this is how I'm going to unpack it for you guys, um, that these Passover instructions seems like an addition to previous instructions found in the beginning of chapter 12. Okay? It seems like it. It seems like it was added on, appended. Or, yeah, that's what it's called, right? You add on stuff, you append stuff, right? It seems like that. But I'm going to argue that these set of instructions were already included in the first set of instructions, but written on a different part of the chapter. You get where I'm trying to go with this? Okay? I'm, uh, I see a lot of confused faces. So I'm saying these instructions are not added on. They're part of the original instructions, but it was written down here. It's written instead of in the first part of chapter 12, it's written at the last part of chapter 12. And there's a reason for that. I'm going to get into that. But that's what's happening here, okay? The instructions for Passover, the complete instructions is the, found in the first part of chapter 12 and this last bit of chapter 12 that we just read, okay? Um, so when you look at, when you read your Bibles and you see something like that, okay, that it looks like these instructions for Passover, they're, they're, it looks like it's new instructions. You have to ask questions, because for a lack of a better word, the placement of these instructions is weird. It's in a weird place because we've already talked about the Passover instructions. So why give another set of instructions and why place it near the end of the chapter? So my answer to that is that no, it's, it's just it's placed there. I'll, I'll, tell, I'll, I'll give you the reason why later. But... I'm going to argue that these instructions are part of, part of the first set of instructions. It's not something that was just added on. Okay? Clear? As mud? <laughs> you, don't, you don't look like it's clear. But So the reason I'm reading it this way is let's read that last verse again. The last verse says in 51, can you guys read that? On that very day, the people of Israel were brought out of Egypt. When did that happen? After the 10th plague. What happened before the 10th plague? Instructions for Passover. So that's why I'm saying that these instructions, they're not extra. They're part of. Okay? Part of the first set of instructions for the Passover because of that verse. Right? Now, some commentaries are saying that these instructions that were tacked on to the last part of um, chapter 12 were written by somebody else, somebody who's got their phone off. <laughs> okay. Some commentaries are saying that these instructions were not, okay, who wrote Exodus? Those of you who know. It's attributed to Moses, right? So they're saying that 
these set of instructions were not written by Moses. It was added on, okay, as part of this chapter, this chapter 12. It's, it's, it, it was from a different author and not necessarily Moses. There's a lot of debate, okay, when you study your Bibles, there's a lot of things that you can see when, when, in, in that way of studying the Scriptures that there are extra biblical authors, okay? And, and the reason for that is uh, if you read the whole, all of the Old Testament, in the Deuter in especially Deuteronomy, the last uh, book of the Torah, there's a part there where it describes Moses' death. How can Moses write that if he was already dead? So there is a school out there of thinking that some of the, some of the Old Testament writers um, were extra-biblical authors. Now, when you hear that, you're, you're probably thinking, oh, okay, so how am I supposed to make sense of this? There must be a reason why it was added, why it was tacked on to the last part and then given us a clue as to, um, to say that, no, this is not an addition, but it's included in the first set of instructions. Okay? There must be a reason for that. There must be a significant reason for that. That's what we're going to take up today. What is the significance of these instructions I'm going to say additional instructions as far as the Passover meal is concerned. Why is it so important? Why was it added? What's the significance for it? Um, we're going to take a look at this it, by using two lenses, okay? Uh, and I'm going to label these lenses uh, with the letter P so you can easily remember it, okay? First P lens that we're going to look at these instructions through is the, the lens of prerequisites, okay? The lens of prerequisites. The other P is the lens of pointers. So we're going to look at these instructions through these lenses, okay? Prerequisites and pointers. Pointers as far as God's greater salvation plan is concerned, okay? Are you following so far? Okay. First... Let's look at the verses again and look at the prerequisite. What's the first prerequisite that we can see in these new, I say new, these additional Passover instructions uh, that we see in verses 43 to 51? One commentary says this. Oh, before I read the commentary, the prerequisite that I'm referring to is the sharing of the Passover meal itself. It says that all Israelites, all everybody included in the nation of Israel are to take or to take part of this meal. They have to. What is the reason for this taking part in the meal? Is to celebrate, commemorate the salvation that God brought them out of. And not just that, if it's part of the first set of instructions, is for the salvation on that night when the 10th plague came. So they are to take part of this meal. They have to. They have no choice. Otherwise, they won't be saved. That's the first prerequisite. Uh, one commentary says this. To be safe, all Israelites needed to celebrate the first Passover. But even after death passed over, they all needed to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. God told them to hold a sacred assembly. Hold a formal Meeting, right? 
in Exodus 12, 16, which meant that the entire community was to gather for worship. They had no choice. They had to. Otherwise, they won't be saved. And not just to eat the Passover meal, but to also congregate for worship. And then it says here, if anyone refused to participate, it says in Exodus 12, 15 and 19, if anyone refused to participate to these or in these holy assemblies, and even in the Passover meal, they are to be cut off from the people of Israel. Now, what did we say, what did I say about these worship services that they had? First, day of unleavened bread, Last day of unleavened bread. What did we say that these were pointers to? This. Right? I said that these feasts were a pointer to what we're doing right now. A formal gathering of believers in commemoration and celebration of the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Passover lamb. Right? That's what I said. So if you look at the instructions... Back then, this is a prerequisite. You get where I'm going with this? Back then, this is a prerequisite to be saved. Nowadays, it's not. This is not going to save you. We keep preaching that, right? But if you're a true believer, you want to be here. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? If you're a true believer, if you're a true follower of Jesus Christ, you'll want to be here. Why? Because you want to celebrate. You want to commemorate the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ by grace through faith. We talked about this during the Sermon on Christian Foundations, that our worship services should be a response of worship because of the salvation that God freely gave us through Faith in Jesus Christ. That's why Sunday services are so meaningful and so important. If you understand why you're here. And that's why it took three weeks to review why we're here. Only proper response the salvation that God gave to the Lord Jesus Christ is worship, thanksgiving. Now, I'm not going to go as far as to say that those who refuse to participate should be cut off. <laughs> but that's what it says, right? If you refuse to participate, you should be cut off. I should add that if you sleep during services, you should be cut off. Like, thank God that it's not, it's not there. So you should be thanking God for that, those of you who are sleeping already. You should be thanking God you're not cut off. I'm not going to go as far as to say that because <laughs> nowadays, okay, faith is internal. can't see it. The only way I can tell is whether or not you're a Christian or not uh, is through the way you live, the way you communicate, the way you deal with other people. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's, that's the first, that, that's the second of the greatest commandments, right? First, love the Lord your God. Second, what? 
Love your neighbor. The first one, you can't see. Second one, you can see. Um, so I'm not going to go as far as to say, okay, you know what? Some of you may, should be cut off. I can't, I can't do that. I don't know who's a true believer here and who's not. You're the only one who knows that. But I will say that Sunday worship is an integral part of the Christian life. Okay? If you don't agree with that, you might as well leave now. Sunday worship is an integral part of the Christian life. Having no desire or giving no importance to the gathering of the believers as the commemoration of God's saving grace through faith in Christ should prompt a professing Christian to what? Examine themselves if they are truly in the faith. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Because there's a lot, of, especially here in North America. Okay. Before, we never used to allow... Uh, the government never used to allow working on Sundays. But because of the demand, consumers, now you can. Uh, and I get it, some people have to. But if you don't have that desire to be here, uh, you know, uh, you know I, I, I've been working through the whole week, I need some time off. Monday to Saturday I work. So Sunday is my only day off. I need it. should prompt you to examine yourself. Because this, remember what I said about this? This is a pointer to what? Sabbath day? Rest? So if you need some time off to rest, there you go. <laughs> you can rest here. Some here, some rest too much here. Right? But you can rest here. This is what you're, you're supposed to, this is what's supposed to happen here. You're supposed to let go of all your anxieties. Trust that God is taking care of them while you enjoy God's presence and salvation. That's what's supposed to happen here. But looking at people's faces, it doesn't look like that's what's happening. Good thing that we're not under the law anymore. Right? Because if we were, instructions say, if you don't want to participate, you're cut off. That's the first prerequisite. A gathering of believers. Those who say they part, have partaken of the Passover lamb by faith, those people gather. Those people commemorate. Those people celebrate that salvation that they have. Amen? Now, next prerequisite that I want us to notice, and then we're going to go to the pointer, is the who. Who of the instructions? Right? Who are those that are included in the partaking of the Passover meal? Plainly, in verse 27, it says, the congregation of Israel, meaning God's people, people that God saved, have to participate in the Passover meal, especially the first one. But even after that, they are to participate, to celebrate, commemorate, the salvation of God. On the other hand, there are other people with them. And it says here that no foreigner shall partake, shall eat of the Passover 
meal in verse 43b. And no foreigner or hired worker may eat of the Passover meal in verse 45. Now, what's the significance of these instructions? The significance of these instructions lies in the fact that the main reason for the Passover meal is for the salvation of those who trusted and obeyed God's commands and therefore received atonement through the Passover lamb. Right? That's the greater pointer that it is pointing to. The purpose or the, the Passover meal is for those who were saved by it. Those who trusted God's command through Moses and obeyed. That's what the meal is for. That's who it's for, right? Now, um, when you think about the departure, when you think about the exodus, um, that's the reason why this next set of instructions, this set of instructions that we're looking at, was put there. Because when the people of Israel left Egypt after the 10th plague, other people got on the bandwagon. There were not just the Israelites that were leaving. The other slaves that were not part of the nation of Israel left with them. That's the reason for these additional instructions. Okay? Many other people, it says in our text, went up with them. Or in other translations, it's described as a mixed multitude also exited Egypt along with the Israelites. That's in chapter 12, verse 38. So because all of these other people got on the bandwagon when they left Egypt, the question of whether or not they should be included in the Passover meal came about. That's why it's written. Because there are other people with the Israelites that came out of Egypt. So now, are these people allowed, included, to partake of the Passover meal? The Bible says, no. Right? No, they are not included. Why? Again, the Passover meal represents those who were saved. Right? It's only for those who were saved. Riken says this, These outsiders had not yet put their faith in the God of Israel, and thus they had no right to receive the atonement that he provided through the Passover lamb. It was not appropriate for them to receive the sign of salvation because they were not trusting in the blood of the lamb. They didn't paint their posts with blood. But when the 10th plague came, who knows if these people had firstborns, they probably died. But if they didn't, they would still be alive, right? And when the 10th plague came and the, and the Egyptians kicked out the Israelites, they're like, oh, it's time for us to go too. So that we cannot, so that we no longer have to be slaves anymore. So they piggybacked on to the departure, to the exodus. So this should not be a surprise, right? So when God says only those who are part of the covenant nation or the covenant community of Israel, they're the only ones who are to take of this meal, it shouldn't be a surprise to us because all throughout this story, God has been distinguishing his people from everybody else. He has been. Right? If, you, if you read, again, if you were paying attention, God has continuously distinguished 
the plague will go to this part of Egypt, but not here because these are my people. He's always distinguished his people from everybody else. There's no difference in these instructions. God is distinguishing his people from everybody else that just bandwagoned outside of Egypt to get out of Egypt. Right? So in a sense, we can say that God's salvation is exclusive. Agree? <laughs> in a sense, it is exclusive. It's only for those who believed and obeyed. Only for those who trusted and obeyed. In a sense, it is exclusive. And if you look at the New Testament, it's the same thing. Right? What is one of the sacraments or no, not ordinance that God left us with in the New Testament? There's baptism and then there's Lord's Supper. Look at what Paul says about the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 29. Can you guys read it? When you, when you read that, who are those who are or should be taking part in the Lord's Supper? Those who believe in the salvation through the body and blood of Christ. Only those. If you don't believe in that and you take the Lord's Supper, you're eating and drinking judgment on yourself. What, why do you think that is? Is God putting a fence like, okay, you're not allowed to come in here. Only those who believe come in here. Is that what God's doing? Is God preventing people from coming in? No, I don't think so. Right? That's not God. Right? So why is this? Why, why, exclus why, is it, why is this exclusivity? What's the reason for this exclusivity? I believe, is to show everyone just how special, just how valuable the salvation of God is. That this treasure, and I would go as far as to call it a miracle, that happens to someone who puts their faith in Jesus is not something that you can just get anywhere. That's what makes it exclusive, is that it is from God alone. God's salvation through faith in Christ is a priceless gift from God. And those who are convinced of this through faith are the ones who respond in worship. So again, if, this is, if that gift is that special, and only those that God gives it to by grace has it, that's why the instructions say, if you don't have it, then don't eat of the Lord's Supper. If you don't, if you weren't saved by faith and obedience through the Passover lamb, then you can't partake of the meal. Because if anybody can just partake of the meal, what does that say about the value of the gift? 
You know those limited edition things? Why are they so valuable? Because they're limited. Uh, this is a whole new topic. I'm not going to get into this limited atonement and stuff like that. Okay. But I'm saying the, the point of this is not God fencing people out. It's God saying, no, this is special. You can't just treat this willy-nilly. This is special. So if that's special, then the worship is special. Then the congregating is special. Then the singing is special. Everything about it is special. You, you get what I'm saying? It's not God trying to keep people out. It's showing God's people how special the gift is that they have. Do you appreciate that? <laughs> it's hard to see from your reactions, but I hope you do. Um, so it's, God's not being exclusive here. He's just showing you how great this gift is. All right? So now, if God is not showing exclusivity, what makes us think that, you know, uh, God is, uh, you know, st still saving people? It doesn't matter who. Next set of instructions. Look at the next part of the Passover instructions. Verse 44. You guys, read it. Verse 48 and 49. Ah. Ah. So first it says... <laughs> Natives, first uh, it says, only Israelites, no foreigners, no slaves. Then it says, well, you can. How? You got to receive the mark, right? What's the mark of the people of God? And this goes back to the, to the covenant with Abraham. The mark is circumcision. So in one sense, God's salvation is exclusive. In another sense, it's inclusive. Right? But look at the inclusivity. Become one of my people by getting this mark. Then you can come in and partake of the Passover. Now, I'll read you another comment by Reichen. There is a way to be saved, however, and that is to come to God in faith. The way people did that in that time of Moses was receiving the sign of circumcision and thus joining the covenant community, the people of God. Once the people were circumcised, whether they were Israelites or not, they're eligible to share Passover. Now, I'm tempted to go ahead of myself here, but I'm going to stop myself. How long have I been going? My timer's off. Anyway. So there is a way to get in. There is a way to be able to partake of the Passover meal. You get yourself circumcised. Right? Um, now this practice of circumcision in and of itself is not the focus of this instruction. I know some of us are looking at it like, okay, when I have a firstborn child, 
circumcise him right away. Um, that's not the point of this. Uh, the instruction is not mainly focused on that. The main focus is being included in the covenant community of God, which in that time, the sign or being included is the circumcision. That's the prerequisite. Be circumcised so that you can be included, so that you can partake of the Passover meal. Now, how come there was no women mentioned? Um, I talked about this last week. Uh, what about the women? Don't, there's no, I don't know if there's circumcision for women, is there? There is, right? Not, in those days, there Again, I don't know if there was. But um, there is circumcision for women. And uh, that's why I say that um, let's not focus on the circumcision, but what it represents. Right? Why do I say that? Because there, were, there weren't women or girls concerned uh, or mentioned in the instructions, only men and boys. And does that mean that women are, and girls are not part of the covenant community? No. So how do we explain that? So how do we say, how do we explain how the women and the girls are included? Well, God's design as far as male and female has been, in, ever since the beginning in Genesis, has been that God put the male as the head or the representative on behalf of the female. Right? That's the design from Adam onwards. God has put the male as a representative on behalf of the female. We saw that during the fall. Who did God call after they have sinned? Adam. He was a representative for both of them. It was Adam that was held responsible by God, not Eve, even though Eve was the one that... You can say that Adam didn't do his job as well. If he's in charge, then he should have said something. Some guys are like that. Right? You're always deferring to your wife. No, that's what Adam did. That's the, number, that's the first thing. Of, I'm not saying to you that you should lord over your wife and just do what you say. That's not what I'm saying. But as far as your responsibility is concerned, as far as your accountability is concerned, as the male, you're responsible. You represent your wife. The male represents the female. Now, when it comes to salvation of the Israelites, did God, you, did God just talk to everybody? No, he talked to Moses as a representative of the people. Same thing. Moses represented the Israelites. Same thing. Jesus, how are we saved through Jesus Christ? Because if you put your faith in him, he will represent you. His righteousness will be like yours. Right? 1 John 2, 1-2. to It talks about Jesus being our advocate. What's the advocate? What does it mean? Representative. Right? That's how it's always been. That's how it's designed. That's why there's no mention of female Circumcision. Because if your father was circumcised, your, or your husband circumcised, you're included. You're part of that. And that's why my wife, I should have 
she's not here. Is she here? She's here somewhere. Because when I first called, got called to be a pastor, she's like, but I don't want to be a pastor's wife. So I'm like, okay, let's divorce. <laughs> How can I be a pastor and you're my wife, but you don't want to be a pastor's wife? And she told me, uh, well, I, you, I wasn't called to be a pastor's wife. You're called to be a pastor. No, it doesn't work that way. Wherever I'm called, you're called. If I'm called to go to Iraq, you go to Iraq. Right? <laughs> well, that, that's, that, that's how it is. That's why it's so hard to see when a, a, a deacon is called to be a deacon and the wife just, ah, ah. It's so frustrating to see that. Or an elder is called to be an elder, but the wife is just not supporting. Because if you, if you vow to be one flesh with this dude, one flesh means you'll go where he goes. He goes where you go. Right? And that's what, that's what it is. Uh, there's no circumcision in women because where your husband goes, you go. Where your father leads, you go. Now, question is this. Fathers, husbands, are you leading? <laughs> That's the question, right? You're the one who's supposed to be circumcised. You're the one representing, right? Are you leading? If your wife, is your wife leading you? Your kid's leading you? You are called to be accountable to God. Are you leading your family? I hope so. I hope so. So now, fathers, husbands, lead your household. You're a representative of your whole family. God is the one. You're the one who God will hold accountable when the time comes. Um, so it says in the text that this rule the circumcision rule applies to Israelites. And those who are circumcised, the same law applies to them. So that means their wives, their daughters, once they get circumcised, part of the covenant community. Now, question. In the New Testament, Paul says that circumcision, the sign of God's covenant people, is not done externally anymore. The reason why it was done externally was to show the faith of, well, at that point in time, it was Abraham. You want to be part of my people, Abraham? Go where I tell you to go, believe in me, trust in me, and also do this. Circumcise. If you look at the Passover, you believe in the commands that you will be saved, paint the blood. There's always an external manifestation of the faith that you profess to say that you have. Always. Whether it's you don't have faith or you do have faith. There is always a manifestation of that faith. Now, in the New Testament, what is it that replaced circumcision? That Paul said. The baptism, Lord's Supper. Is it a godly life? What is it in the New Testament? What is the 
New Testament equivalent of circumcision, according to Paul? And how should our understanding of the New Testament equivalent of circumcision be applied? This is the pointer. Okay. Remember, prerequisite, pointer. Prerequisite is circumcision. Prerequisite for what? So that you can become part of the covenant community, which is a prerequisite so that you can be, take, partake the Passover lamb. Oh, sorry, not the Passover lamb, but the Passover meal, right? So now, in, as a pointer, when it comes to circumcision, what is it that the New Testament teaches us that is equivalent, the New Testament equivalent to circumcision, and how do we apply it? If you want to know, come back next week. Um, well, not next week, week after, because next week we're going to go um, solo uh, we're going to talk about the book that we're going to do in prayer meeting. Uh, but the week after that, we're coming back to this. Because circumcision is such a big topic, all right? Let me ask you this question just to get your brains going. Why are some evangelical churches circumcising, or sorry, baptizing babies? You ever, you ever heard of that? Presbyterians, they baptize babies in the Catholic they baptize babies. How come we don't? What is it about us that we don't baptize babies? What is it about our understanding of this sign, this <laughs> sign of the new covenant, that we don't baptize babies? Think about that and come back a couple of weeks from now. We'll come back next week. We'll come back a week after that as well so you can talk about it some more. Amen? Let's pray. <laughs> The Lord bless you and keep.